In this series, Advent Invitations, we have imagined each of the four Gospels as a home that we are invited into to encounter Christ. And each of the Gospels have stressed some things other than the actual birth of Jesus. And what we have been looking at is kind of the lead-in to the birth of Christ as each gospel opens, as we are invited in, and as we look around. In Matthew, we saw the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Abraham, leading through King David. In Mark, we've seen that the good news is announced by a forerunner, John the Baptist. In Luke... Last week, we looked at two devout Jewish people, Mary and Zechariah, that gave to us two poems of liberation, anticipating a time when Christ would bring down the powerful and liberate the oppressed. Now in the Gospel of John, what we find is a completely different approach. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, and there's a reason for that, because it's almost as if, even though they have unique material in them, they all kind of look through the same lens. And so synoptic one lens or one view is a description of those three gospels. But when you come to the gospel of John, you come to a way of looking at the Christ story not going back to Bethlehem, but going all the way back to the beginning of creation. And in order to get an understanding of what John is doing, I want to show you a slide that helps us in week four as we step into John's gospel. You, if you can remember the number seven, you basically have the outline of the gospel of John in mind. John does not choose 12 or 15 or 20 different miracles of Christ. He chooses seven of them. And they are called signs as if they're pointing the way to something. And you can see what these signs are. He changes water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He heals a royalman's official. He heals a paralytic. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals a man that has been blind from birth. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And while John will give a hint that Jesus did many more miracles than these, these seven somehow give to us a picture of Jesus and what he came to do, what he came to accomplish. Now, a second seven is seven statements, or they're called seven metaphorical I am statements of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, he, Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. And so seven signs and seven statements, all of these are being put together in such a way to give a testimony or to give a, a signpost to the watching world of who Jesus is. Well, one other way he does it, another seven, is seven interviews, or we might call them seven witnesses. So there are seven people that are spotlighted in the Gospel of John, and in the account with these seven people, there are seven proclamations of who Jesus is. For example, John the Baptist will say he's the chosen one. Nathaniel will say you are the Son of God. Peter will say you are the Holy One of God. Martha will say you are the Christ, the Son of God. Thomas will say, my Lord and my God. 
Uh, John will say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus himself will say, I am the Son of God. So all of these are giving to us a pinpoint purpose of what John is trying to accomplish. John has a purpose statement. And the purpose statement is at the very end. If you see up there, uh, there is this statement that John, the writer of the gospel, makes. He says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The full uh, verse of that goes like this. In John uh, 20, 30, and 31, uh, John, the writer of the uh, gospel, says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole purpose of the gospel, seven signs, seven statements, seven witnesses, are all designed to help us to have belief in Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of God. Now, have you ever asked the question, What is God like? What is God like? And I think that is the crucial question that is being asked in the Gospel of John. What is God really like? And if we can get an understanding of what God is really like, then, then what we can understand is what He's not like. Are you following? If God is like this, then He's not like this. And trust me, once you get a hold of this, It will bring great assurance and peace to your heart. And so when the angels say to the watching world, peace on earth and goodwill to all men, I think part of that is an understanding of if we can answer the question, what is God like? It will bring peace, inner peace. And hopefully, if enough people would come to that realization that Jesus is the Son of God, there would be peace among men as well. So what I want to do, and it's going to require a little bit of participation in your part, by taking a Bible in the pew in front of you and turning to the Gospel of John. And I want to go through just a few verses, and when we go through these verses, I think it will become apparent that John's approach is going to help us answer this question, what is God really like? So if you have... Uh, the Gospel of John in front of you, go over to chapter 5. And I'm not going to spend too long in any one of these references, but what I do want you to see is the common theme that it's leading to the answer of this question, what is God really like? So if you come down in John chapter 5 to verse 19, it says this. So usually, just a quick um, disclaimer here. So in each of these Uh, settings, usually Jesus is in dialogue with the religious authorities. So who are the individuals that have the most problems with Jesus? It's those in power. It's the religious authorities, those that don't want to lose their influence among the populace. So in these dialogues that are going on, Jesus will make several statements. In verse 19, he says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So the first point that's being made here is there's such an intricate connection between God the Father and God the Son that God the Son is carrying out what God the Father wants to accomplish. Okay, hold on to that. So go over to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, come down to verse 28, and it says here, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not from here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Now, this would cause some of the religious uh, leaders to scratch their head a little bit. You're Jesus. You're from Nazareth. We know where you're from. Your mom and your dad are Mary and Joseph, and you grew up in a carpenter's house, and you helped your dad in the trade. And and Jesus is saying to him, no, there's something else to this. I come from my Father, and I have this authority that comes from Him, and at this point He is basically says, you know, if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at me, because that's my true lineage, is this eternal lineage, not just my earthly lineage. Okay, now go over to chapter 8, verse 19. So, in this ongoing dialogue with these religious leaders, they ask him, where is your father? Okay, they get right down to brass tacks. Where is your father? Well, doesn't he live in Nazareth? Jesus responds, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Notice how Jesus speaks so mysteriously at times in responding to the religious leaders. And he's saying, if you knew me, you would know my father. Not my earthly father. He's referring to his heavenly father. So go over to chapter 10. Well, we only got a couple more here. In chapter 10, verse 28 and um, 29. Here it says, uh, I'll begin in verse 25. Jesus says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now listen, perk up. I and the Father are one. Oh boy. I and the Father are one. He's making a claim beyond his earthly uh, heritage. I and the Father are one. And the Jews get it. If you look at verse 31, they pick up stones to stone him because they think he's blaspheming by claiming that he is God. Chapter 12, verse 44 and 45. So when you come to chapter 12... Again, he's in dialogue with the Pharisees, and it says in verse 44, Jesus cried out, those who believe in me do not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. And when they look at me, they see the one who sent me. 
I have come into the world as a light that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. When they look at me, they see the one who sent me. Are you, do you see all of these things are adding up? They're all basically saying the same thing. What is God like? When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. Okay, the last one, verse uh, 7 of chapter 14. Now, you might be familiar with this passage. Uh, this is a more um, notable passage that people are familiar with. When Thomas uh, was not present when Jesus uh, showed the rest of the disciples that he was alive. And, um, and so it, it, Thomas will say in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him and have not seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And, Je- and Jesus answered, Do you know me? don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, so we did just a little Bible survey in the Gospel of John, all making basically the same point. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. And when you see Jesus, you begin to understand the heart of God. You begin to understand the motive of God and the mission of God. All of these words that Jesus spoke were not by accident. And neither is the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And He shows Himself as the one who is not just an earthly babe that grew into a a man, but he is also God who stepped into the human experience that we might see what God is like. In other words, before there was a Big Bang and millions of years of evolution and development of the cosmos, there was God. And when God chooses to create, he is also starting a movement of a storyline that will lead to Jesus who steps into the creation to unveil this question, do you want to know what God is really like? And the answer is, yes, I would love to know what God is really like because misconceptions of what God is really like has caused pathological anxiety in so many people who are afraid of God, think that they need to appease God, think that God cannot be pleased in any way, shape, or form. But this is the God who became one of us. He steps into the genetic stream, and He shows us what God is really like by the incarnation. You know, God is not off in some distant heaven so far back in the reaches of the universe that he's, he doesn't matter. He is not a God that is just a master clockmaker that winds the universe up to run out on its own. He is a God that steps into what he has created that we might see what he is really like and as we understand what he is really like, then we can become all he created us to be. That's why John starts his gospel with creation and not the crib. And so I like this statement uh, by a church father by the name of Arrhenius. Arrhenius um, made this statement, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. 
In other words, when we see Jesus, we are seeing what a human being is supposed to be, but we have made mistakes and we have messed up royally. We call that sin. But our history as a human family is often brutal and a bit sordid. We go to war with each other, we tolerate poverty and oppression, and we fail to protect the earth, our home. And each of us, every one of us here this morning, carries certain scars of things done to us and the unhealed memories of wrongs maybe that we have done to other people. We carry anger, we carry shame, and saddest of all, we carry resignation that we think we have to live that way our whole lives. But we don't. God became what we are in order to make us what He intended us to be. And that brings great glory to God, the human being that is fully alive, that experienced the power of a new life that is found in Christ, the one who follows the footsteps of Jesus to see what it really means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Then, and only then, can we really understand our potential of who we are as the creation of God. So, if we were to answer, answer this question, what is God really like, with the simplest of phrases, we would answer it like this, God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. Is God like the pagan gods of the Old Testament? No, He is not. Is God even like the God often portrayed in the Old Testament that Israel worshipped? No, he is not. Is there more than one God and does a multiplicity of God somehow make up a concept of what God is like? No. Our capacity for imagining God seems virtually limitless. Is God like Zeus who incites anger uh, by hurling thunderbolts? Is he like Ganesh? the lovable elephant-headed god of prosperity from the Hindu pantheon? No, he's not like that. Is God like the cosmic white-bearded old man sitting behind a computer in the far side cartoon? No, he's not like that. Does God bear any resemblance to the primitive tribal deities who lead their people in waging war on other people? No, he's not like that. Is God simply a will to power whose omnipotence controls every event in the universe? No, he's not like that. Is God aloof and the absent clot maker of Thomas Jefferson and our early uh, uh, founders of our nation? No, he is not like that. John is telling us that if you want a true picture of what God is really like, you look at Jesus. And in John chapter 1, this is especially important to understand that one of the reasons for the incarnation is to give us a clear picture of what God is really like. So in the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 A.D., um, they ruled in favor of icons. So an icon is an image, not an idol that you worship, but an image that you can look at to understand something else. So sometimes you see in stained glass window, uh, not just of God, but uh, in various stained glass windows, icons of the apostles, let's say. So that in a more primitive time when people... Uh, could not read, they could look and they could understand some of the stories of Jesus within the stained glass windows in the basilicas that uh, they often attended. Well, an icon is something that we all need. So uh, I don't know what you're giving to each other for Christmas, but um, when you open the box on Christmas, 
uh, there's usually an instruction manual on how to put it together inside. And in there are pictures or icons to help you understand how to put it together. So if you go to Ikea and you buy something, you will not find written instructions on how to put something together. It's all done by pictures. That's it. Nothing written. So these icons help you to visualize how to put your TV stand together or whatever it is that you bought. Okay? So... If we can understand that Jesus is the ultimate icon of what God is really like, the ultimate picture of what God is really like, then what we understand is God is not this God who's retributive, but He is a God who's relational. He is a God that is forgiven because ultimately, here's the deal, the birth of Christ brought God to man, but the cross of Christ embodies the love of God. You see, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he dies in Jerusalem. And on that cross, as the theologian Jorgen Moltmann said, we see a crucified God. Not that God dies, but this crucified God shows us the heart of what God is really like, how much he loves us, the extent that he will go to bring us into his fold, to forgive us for our sins. And at the heart of the Christian faith is not just the crib, but the cross. And at the heart of the Christian faith is this scandal of a crucified God, of this tiny baby that will do nothing but heal and love and teach and he is then crucified unjustly. And what we find is over the centuries are neat and tidy explanations of why Jesus died on the cross uh, leads to all kinds of atonement theories. But here is the one that is the best. The cross is not so much a picture of payment, but it is a picture or an icon of the forgiving heart of God. And as he hangs on the cross... Many years later, he looks down upon this blood-stained world and upon the people who have made it that way, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. We are so ignorant in the ways of God that we need an icon or a picture of what God does and the way that he would do it. So that goes farther into the story of the Bible than just Bethlehem. It goes all the way to Calvary. And what we find is it is our violence. It is our sin. It is our hatred. It is our anger that puts him up on the cross. And there we see on the cross three criminals in the eyes of the Roman state. And one comes to a realization that the man that is hanging next to him is not deserving of the punishment they realize that they're deserving of that death sentence. And so this thief looks over to Jesus and says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said this, today you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, what is the heart of the one who is hanging there being tortured by human beings? Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise you see, the Dr. Frankenstein image of God is something that we have created. It's not the true picture of what God is really like, but if we can see that God is like Jesus, oh my, 
The forgiveness-centered view of the cross saves us from this pathological anxiety that everybody lives with, thinking that God is out to get them. No, He's not out to get you. He's out to love you. And He's out to bring light to you and to bring you back to Himself. So we are reminded during this Christmas season from John's portrait, which is totally unique, that there is this God that makes himself known in the person of Jesus and our quest to know what God is really like is answered in him. The good news is God can be found. The good news is God can be experienced. The good news is God can be known. The good news is God can be imitated. And what we find is a simple way of looking at Jesus as the ultimate icon, picture, portrait, whatever word you want to use of what God is really like reminds us of what the end of your liturgy says. So I want you to stand with me. There's an author by the name of Brian Zond who uh, puts it like this. And I would like for us to recite this together, okay? So we saw in John 1.18 that Jesus reveals what God is really like. No man has seen God at any time. Only the Son has revealed Him. So let's say this in closing together, all right? God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. Boy, if we could memorize that, and at times when we are nervous about whether God loves us or not, we should kind of recite this to ourselves. So let's say it one more time, and then we will close. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There never was a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known that, uh, but now we do. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. I trust that that will carry you through the Christmas holiday, and when you think about Christmas Eve, that day that was chosen by the early church to celebrate the birthday of Christ, you do know December 25th is probably not the actual day that Jesus was born, but it was chosen as that day of worship. It was chosen as that day of remembrance. It was chosen as that day to, on a yearly basis, to finish up the preparation of our heart in Advent so that we can come to the realization that God loves us, He forgives us, He walks with us. And so we look at one end in the birth of Christ, but the other end leads us to the cross. And out beyond the cross, through the grave, to resurrection. That's the full story. And I trust that all of this will be so comforting and assuring to you and give to you strength because this world is a tough place to walk through. And if you carry the burden of thinking that God is out to get you, you will never outrun anxiety and fear. But if you understand that God is like Jesus, you can know peace and love and joy. And that's my prayer for all of you. God, pour out your peace and love and joy upon us this week as we head into the Christmas celebration of your entrance into the world and your revelation of what you're really like. Thank you so much that we can look at John's gospel and walk away with not just historical facts or historical characters, but we can walk through 
this story to the point that is trying to be made to humanity. That you are a God, a crucified God who loves us to the point of demonstrating the extent of your love for us through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray and to his glory. Amen and amen. I trust you have a great week. I hope you can come out on Christmas Eve for the candlelight.